Thanks so much, Ben. I'd invite you to uh, grab a seat. And uh, I'd love to welcome you again here tonight. Uh, my name is Chris. Uh, I'm, one of the, uh, I'm part of the leadership team here at Beyond Church. And we are so glad that you're here with us tonight. Uh, if, if you're new, if this is your first time, we're actually in part two. So you've joined us uh, a little bit into a series that we're doing here at Beyond called The Man Behind the Beard. Uh, the way we like to do things here is we like to take an idea or a topic and we like to unpack it over a number of weeks and kind of each week is like a part or an episode so we kind of camp out on, on one big idea and we, we kind of flesh it out over the uh, last couple of weeks. But we thought with the lead into Easter that Easter and Christmas in our culture, that they're starting to fade a little bit but it still seems that the remnants of the DNA are holding on in our culture that at Easter and Christmas you kind of come back to church. Even if maybe you're not particularly religious, Easter and Christmas seem to be those times that uh, growth in churches swell. And so we thought, with the lead into Christmas, we thought we would answer um, and talk about who is the man behind the beard. At the centre of Christianity is a man, and so what we wanted to do is we wanted to help you answer this question throughout this series. Who is the man behind the beard? That's it. That's our agenda for this series. If we can help you better answer this question, we'll have done our job. Uh, And last week, just to catch everyone up really, really quickly so we're all on the same page, uh, last week we looked at uh, a little bit of the historical evidence for this idea of did Jesus exist and and we looked at the fact that uh, there was a guy called Julius Caesar, a really prominent Roman emperor, uh, started some of the Roman revolution. We said that there are five sources in existence that we draw all our knowledge of Julius Caesar about. And we said uh, in the same time period for Jesus, there are are sources that stack 1.6 kilometers tall. And so we said we know a lot about Jesus. And so last week we actually looked at a historian whose name was Luke. Uh, Luke was actually a medical doctor as well, but what he liked to do is he, he had a little bit of a historical bent. And so he went and he interviewed all these people. And he asked all these people about who Jesus was and he wrote this biographical account. Uh, he wasn't really imaginative, but he called it Luke. And we looked at this conversation that Luke had, um, or sorry, that Jesus had with some of his disciples last week. And we came to this conclusion that you can pick and choose what you think about Jesus, but you cannot pick and choose how Jesus intended you to think of him. In other words, you can pick and choose what category you lump Jesus into. But when you dig beneath the surface, when you start to read um, biographies and you start to listen to what people who knew Jesus wrote about Jesus, you understand really, really quickly that Jesus never intended just to be taken as a good moral teacher. Never, Jesus never intended to be taken as a prophet. Jesus never intended to be taken as an enlightened person. Jesus made some very specific claims about who he intended to be taken as. And uh, last week, at the very end of, the, of the, the, uh, our time together, uh, Jesus was kind of hanging out with these guys and he asked his closest followers. Um, you might know them as the 12 disciples. We like to call them the dirty dozen. Uh, and he asked, one of the, he asked his closest disciples, he pulled him in really, really close and he said, hey, who do you say that I am? If you had to answer that question, who do you say that I am? And then the, the, the overachiever, um, if you don't know anything about uh, the guys or the people that hang out with Jesus, like there was this one overachiever called Peter. Uh, I would paint him as like, he's the person that tells the teacher there's a, there's a test uh, when everyone else has forgotten and there's five minutes left. And so the teacher makes you stay back to take the test. Peter is one of these guys. And so Jesus says, who do, who do you say that I am? And Peter's like, pick me. And he says, you're the Messiah. Which if you've never been to church before, you're like, the what? Like, that's a weird word. 
And so we're going to springboard our discussion tonight around this word, Messiah. Because essentially what Peter was saying when he said, you're the Messiah, it's just a really fancy way of saying, Jesus, you're the Saviour. Jesus, you're our Saviour. And, and at that point in time, this, this word Messiah was thrown around in this first century Jewish context. And a lot of different people had a lot of different thoughts about what a Messiah would save these people from. Some people thought that he would save them from the political oppression that they were suffering at the moment. The Jewish people were under Roman rule at this time, and so some people thought that the Saviour would save them from the rule of the Romans. Some people thought the Saviour would kind of uh, start a socialist movement. He would take care for the sick and and kind of save the sick and and the, the downtrodden, the people on the fringes. But when Peter said this, Peter meant this in a global context. He meant, no, 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 Jesus, you are my saviour. You're the saviour of the nation, uh, of the Jewish people, but you're also the saviour of the world. The saviour of the world, not just for people who are alive right now, but for people who are going to come into existence as well. You're the saviour of all humankind. And I've got to be honest, like, that sounds a little bit weird when you hear it. Because let's, let's be honest, let's be real, like, what do we need saving from? Like, what, what do you and what do I need saving from? I mean, ch- chances are that at some point in your life, you've probably said words to the effect of, well, look, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect, right? No, nobody's perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm not claiming to be perfect. But I'm just saying, what do I need saving from? I might not be perfect, but, but I'm good enough, Right? And, and what happens when we, when we make this kind of comparison is what we tend to do is we tend to say, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm good enough. And I'm good enough based on the fact that I'm better, I think, than the people I see around me. You know, like, sure, I'm, I might lie a little bit, but I, I don't lie when it's really important. You know, like, like I saw some of the politicians, like I've seen the way that they like, that's really, really bad. I'm not like that. I might cheat, but I only cheat on really important things, like when I haven't studied at all for the test. Like, I don't cheat, like, I don't cheat people out of money. I don't cheat people out of their homes. I don't cheat, like, I'm not that bad, right? And so we play this comparison game, and we, we, we base our standard of, well, I'm good enough. I'm not perfect, but I'm good enough, based on the way that other people live their lives and based on the way that we interpret other people living our life. And on the surface... This seems like a, like a good approach. This seems like, like a good approach to, to justify the fact that we're good enough. But as we're going to discover tonight, there's something that lurks just below the surface with that kind of assumption. There's something that lurks just below the surface and it's just deep enough that if we don't think about it too hard, we'll never ever come to that realisation and we'll never ever grapple with it. It's what I like to call the good enough problem. And the good enough problem is, is more of a problem than we would realise. And I just, I wanted to demonstrate to you what I mean by the good enough problem, by my little tape measure. Because if this is the standard of perfect, and if we look at this tape measure and we say, you know, perfect's up here and really, really bad somewhere down there past the end of the tape measure, we know that I can't get, I know that I can't be perfect. I know that nobody's perfect. But this is where the good enough problem comes in. 
how good is good enough? And what if, what if the way I live my life is good enough here, yet the people that I mark my good enough against are down here, but they're marking their good enough against someone else? So right off, I have a good enough standard, someone else has a good enough standard, someone else has a good enough standard. Whose good enough standard is right? And which one do we go by? How will I know when I become good enough? When I get to this point that I think I'm trying to strive for, how will I know? What sign is there? Who's going to tell me that, that what I've done is good enough to get me to heaven, good enough to get me to where I need to go? It's good enough, it's acceptable enough. Here's one that really, really bugs me. Who gets to determine the standard? I mean, all of us are sitting here and we're talking about this idea of good enough. We're talking about this idea that nobody's perfect. We have this idea in our mind of what perfect would look like. We have this idea in our mind of what good enough would look like. But who gets to determine that? What if my standard of good enough is very different from your standard of good enough? Should both of those be okay? Should both of those be acceptable if one person's standard is here and one person's is down here? It seems a little unfair, doesn't it? And so the good enough problem is okay if we don't think about it. But when we start to dig below the surface, we realize just how much of a problem it is. Because ultimately, when we, when we ask this good enough question, when we wrestle with those questions like, what does it look like? How do I know? Who gets to define it? What we're ultimately asking is this question. When does good enough become good enough to get me into heaven? Maybe you'd frame it a different way. When does good enough become good enough that God will give me a path? When does good enough become good enough so that God loves me? And this is the, the tension that we're going to wrestle to the ground tonight. This is the tension that we're going to answer because at the center of the man behind the beard is an answer to this question. And we find this answer uh, if we go back about 2,000 years ago. Because there was a group of people who asked this question, when does good enough become good enough? And there was a group of religious leaders about 2,000 years ago who thought, we've got the answer to this question. In fact, if you were to ask anyone in their culture, in their society, who, who were the morally upright people in this culture? Who were the people that if God came down and God had to pick the people who were good enough, who would he pick? And these people knew the answer to that question. They pointed, they said, it would be the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the ones who are good enough. The Pharisees have got an answer to this question. They've got it all figured out. Then something interesting happens. Because Jesus steps onto the pages of history. And when Jesus is walking around, he's not interested in the people who claim to be good enough. The people who have set the moral standard, that set the moral code, that have labeled themselves good enough, Jesus seems really disinterested in. And in fact, Jesus actually seems more interested in the people that the Pharisees have labeled as not good enough. And, and it strikes this really weird tension because the Pharisees are like, why aren't you paying attention to us? And the people who the Pharisees have labeled and pushed to the side are, are like, well, we're not good enough. Why are you a religious leader hanging out with us? And we're going to find this answer. Um, how do we answer this question? How do we get to this to question, uh, the, an answer? When does good enough become good enough? In the writings 
of a tax collector named Matthew. Now, Matthew's a really interesting dude because Matthew was actually one of Jesus' followers. And what's interesting is is the fact that Matthew was a tax collector. See, what, what would happen is these Pharisees, when they would label people not good enough, what they would actually call them is sinners. And see, there was a, a distinction between sinners and tax collectors. Because uh, like I said before, the, 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 uh, the Jews were under Roman rule. And so Matthew was a Jewish tax collector. And so he worked for the Romans collecting taxes from the Jewish people. And so the Jewish people didn't like him because he worked for the Romans. And the Romans didn't like him because he worked, because uh, he was Jewish. And so the sinners, they knew that in that society, they weren't good enough, but they didn't want to be associated with the tax collectors. So they made a very distinct, where the sinners, and then there's the tax collectors. And so Matthew was one of these, and Jesus walked up to him and he said, Matthew, I want you to follow me. I want you to be one of my disciples. And we enter into this account that Matthew wrote retrospectively, this biography about Jesus, and we pick up just after Matthew has been called to follow Jesus. And so Matthew has done what uh, you would do uh, in that day and age if you were friends with someone. It says that later, so later meaning afterwards, uh, later Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his house as dinner guests. He's just been invited to follow Jesus and he invites them around as dinner guests. And this is a big deal. This is, may not be a big deal for us in, in our day and age, but this is a big deal in first century Jewish culture. Because if you eat with someone in that culture, you broadcast a message to everyone else who's looking and everyone else who will hear that these people are my friends. These people at the table with me, we are equals. I view them the same way that I view myself. And so Jesus was hanging out at Matthew's house. And then some people joined the party. And the people that joined the party, says, along with tax collectors and disreputable sinners, or tax collectors and sinners. See, there's that distinction. Matthew knows the distinction because he's a tax collector. He knows the rules. And what I find really interesting about that is that when, when these friends of Matthew came around, when these people that religiously just pushed to the side walked into Matthew's house and they saw Jesus, no one asked, what's that guy doing here? No one said, oh, I've got to leave because that guy is here. Which leads me to conclude, and if you've been with us a while, we say this all the time, that people who were nothing like Jesus actually liked Jesus. And then it goes on. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples. So the Pharisees maybe overheard, and they were walking past Matthew's house, and it says they saw this, because they didn't want to go inside. Remember, these are the people who they've got a whole heap of rules, a whole heap of rituals, a whole heap of ceremonies to make themselves good enough to God. And one of those rules, those rituals, that was if I go and hang out with those people, I become unclean. I don't want to eat with them. I don't want to be seen to be with them. I'm good enough. They're not good enough. And so what the Pharisees did is they uh, hung outside Matthew's home and they waited and they waited and they started to tap their feet because they started to get impatient. They were so annoyed. They were so angry that Jesus was hanging out with Matthew and his friends that they waited there until the early hours of the morning until everyone started to clear out. And when everyone started to clear out, when they wouldn't be ceremonially unclean anymore, they approached Jesus's disciples and they asked them this question. Why does your teacher eat with such scum? 
Ouch. And really, really what they're saying to the disciples is, hey, hey, don't you know Jesus, if, if, if this guy is the Messiah like you claim, if he really is a saviour, then he's supposed to be good enough. And when he eats with those kind of people, he makes himself not good enough. Who is this guy that won't hang out with us, yet he eats with these people that, that we label and they know they are not good enough? And Jesus is coming out and he overhears this. And he hears the Pharisees talking this way about his friends and he says, hey, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And we know this, is, this seems to make a bit of sense, right? When, when you're in tip-top shape, when you're feeling better than you've ever felt before, you don't get on the phone and call your doctor and be like, hey, I was just wondering if I could come in and just, you know, just talk about life. You don't call your dentist up some of us don't go to the dentist, but some of us, you know, if you go to the dentist, you don't call your dentist up and say, hey, I was just, could we just come in and talk about the latest flossing techniques? I just really need to know what's going on in the world of flossing. No problem with my teeth? No, no problem. Just, I just want to know how I can keep them even better. When, when things are going well, when life is good, we don't go to doctors. We don't go to dentists. We don't go and hang out at the physio, uh, at the, with physiotherapists, because that's for sick people. And then Jesus goes on, and, and the next statement stuns, shocks, and angers the Pharisees. Because he says, I have not come to call those who think they are righteous. In other words, I haven't come for you. You religious people, you insiders, those of you who think that you're good enough, those of you who look down your nose at other people, those of you who feel morally superior to everyone else because of the way you act, because of the way you dress, because of the things you do that other people don't do, I haven't come for you because you already think you're good enough. And when you think you're good enough, let's be honest, you don't need a saviour. And you can feel them getting angry and you can almost see them like, well, well, who did you come for then? If you didn't come for us, who did you come for? And Jesus says, those who know they are sinners. And in that moment, you could almost feel the anger just spew out of the Pharisees. The tension would have been palpable. Who are you, Jesus, to tell us that we're not good enough? Who are you to tell us that we don't measure up to the standards? We created the standards. Who are you to tell us that we have to know that we're sinners? Because we're not sinners, we're good enough. And that might seem really offensive to you tonight. What do you mean? Jesus is a saviour, but he's only a saviour if I recognise that I'm not good enough? What, what has that got to do? Like, I am good enough. Jesus says, what we, what we have this tendency to do, if we're honest, if we're really honest with ourselves, is we, we have a tendency to block people into kind of two categories. Mistakers and sinners. Mistakers would define themselves, I found a dictionary definition of a mistake. Uh, and a mistake is this, it is a, um, it's a mis- uh, it's an error in action, calculation, opinion or judgment caused by poor reasoning. And we like to block ourselves, and the majority of us like to block ourselves in this group, mistakers. And then there's this definition of sin. And sin is a breach of divine law. 
So sin is that level of perfect that we're, oh, sorry, perfection is this level that we're trying to achieve and every time we're not, we're not perfect, we'd say we sin. And if we're really, really honest with ourselves, we like to bunch ourselves in that category of mistakers because it sounds better. It feels nicer. Look, I, I know I shouldn't have texted him back. I know I shouldn't have called her back, but, but I didn't really know them. It was a mistake. I, I, didn't, I, didn't mean to, I didn't mean to go around their house. I didn't mean to respond to that mess. It was a mistake. Look, I, I know that I shouldn't have handled the situation that way. I, I know that, that if I'd have had more information, I would have handled it differently. But honestly, it was just a mistake. It, if I'd have known the truth, there's no way I would have lied. If, if I'd have known how it really was, there's no way I would have entered into that deal. And what we do... If we can boil every single decision that we make down into a mistake, then ultimately we're mistaken. But if there's something more going on, if we're actually sinners, then it means that we need a saviour. And for some of us, that that probably sounds really, really offensive and and you're probably like pushing back against it. You might be arguing with me in your head and and that's okay. I, I totally get that. I understand that you might say, hey, Chris, you know what? I'm a, I'm a mistaker. I'm really not a sinner. And, and that's cool. I get why you push back. But, but when you go home tonight and when you turn the lights off and you, when you're in bed and you finally put the phone down and you're lying there looking at the ceiling, you'll know that there are, there are some decisions and there are some things that you've done that are mistakes for sure that there are some things that you pass off as mistakes that you know are far from mistakes. In fact, some of these things that you pass off as mistakes, you plan to do. You knew you were going to do them. And you knew the chances of what would happen if you got caught. And, and chances are you probably even thought of a response for if you got caught to palm it off as a mistake. You, you were reasoning and thinking about a way that you could get it off. And even if you got caught, or, or even if you did it and you palmed it off as a mistake, chances are you're hoping that you'll get an opportunity to do it again. And maybe you're even planning about the way that you can do it again. And if you're honest with yourself, you'll know that it's not and it wasn't a mistake. It goes so much deeper than that. And what about the guilt? What about the guilt that carries with you? It kind of haunts you. It just, just, just won't let you go. If it's a mistake, you shouldn't feel guilty. If it's an honest mistake, there's no guilt associated because you didn't know better. You didn't have enough information. But it wasn't a mistake, was it? Some of the things you're thinking about and the things you're replaying, they, they weren't mistakes. And you know that. And that's, why the guilt carries with you. Because guilt doesn't stick around for mistakes. Guilt only hangs around if something far, far worse is going on behind the scenes. And so after that incredible pep talk, I thought I would give you the bottom line. Because what is the bottom line? Because what, what is the bottom line and what is the takeaway? And the bottom line is this. Is it in... Christianity, 
And when the man behind the beard stepped onto the pages of history, he wasn't worried about good enough and not good enough. Jesus said, believed that good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. Because mistakers always believe that they can do better and get it right on their own. But sinners recognize that there's no way they can get it perfect. There's no way they can get it all together. And so they put their hope and their trust in a saviour. That's it. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. And maybe you've been tracking along and, and you're not too annoyed and you're not too angry and you're not thinking about how you're going to write that uh, message on Facebook about how that guy like, said those things at that church that you went to on Sunday night. And maybe you're still with me. And maybe the question you're asking, you're kind of saying, well, hey, look, I'm open to this idea. Maybe, maybe it's worse than I originally thought. Maybe it's more than a mistake. Maybe it's something far deeper. But what, do I, what, what does it look like to get a saviour? What would it mean for me to get a saviour? What do I have to do to get a saviour? And a little bit after Jesus walked the earth, in fact, uh, this guy was on, around when Jesus was around, another Pharisee stepped onto the scene. And this Pharisee was unlike any Pharisee that the world had ever seen. In fact, Pharisees referred to him as the Pharisee of Pharisees. When the Pharisees huddled around, they said, what's the standard? Who's good enough? They pointed to this guy and they said, this guy is good enough. In fact, this guy was so sold out for being a Pharisee that he actually went and murdered and killed Christians for, for a living. That was part of what he did. And then he met Jesus. And his world was torn, uh, turned upside down and he became a follower of Jesus. And apart from Jesus, he's the greatest church planner and evangelist we know. And his name is Paul. And so years after Jesus lived, this Pharisee of Pharisees writes a letter to a church in Rome about what it would look like and what it requires of us to get a saviour. And he says this, he says, for we all have fallen, for, for everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standards. Awesome, thanks Paul, we already knew that, we've been talking about it for 15 minutes. And then he goes on, he goes on and he says, but, but God in his grace, sorry, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. In other words, God doesn't ask anything of you. God doesn't require anything of you to be forgiven. In fact, this is one of the things that makes following Jesus so unfair. And that word up there, grace, what it essentially means is God was not being fair. Because God was not being fair. Because when God looked down and he said, hey, you guys messed up. What I should do is I should make you beg. I should make you grovel. I should make you earn your way back. But instead, I'm going to be unfair. I'm going to send Jesus as your saviour so that you can know how much I care, you can know how much I love you, and you can know that there is nothing you have to do, that it is a free gift given for you. And then he goes on. He says, people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. In other words, in that moment, in that moment when you start to say, hey, you know what, maybe, maybe I'm not a mistaker. Maybe it goes deeper than that. 
In that moment when you say, you know what, I can't trust myself. In fact, even if I lived a perfect life from here on out, even if I never did anything wrong again from here on out, the life I live cannot wash away and cannot erase the blemishes of my past. And in that moment when I realize that is not possible and I realize that I'm not a mistake and I need a savior, in that moment when we transfer our trust from ourselves to Jesus, and what his death won on the cross for us, that's when we're forgiven. And as a sinner, we realize that to live a perfect life is not possible, but that someone has lived a perfect life for us. And it's in that moment that we grasp the central message of the man behind the beard, the central message of Christianity, which is, that good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. And so followers of Jesus, that means that we are not people who look down our nose at people. We are not people who live a life to please God. We are not people who act like we have it all together because the prerequisite to be a follower of Jesus is to recognize that we don't have it all together in the first place. But there's someone that had it all together for us. And our faith and our hope our trust is in Him. We have this thing here at Beyond, it's called For Monday, because uh, we believe that there's no point coming to church regardless of your faith, uh, regardless of what you believe, if it's not helpful, if it doesn't benefit you for Monday or for the rest of the week. Uh, and instead of doing a For Monday this week, what we thought we would do is we would do a For, uh, for Now. Um, and so the For Now for this week uh, is we wanted to give you an opportunity to take a step where you're at towards following Jesus. Maybe tonight you're here and, and you're thinking, hey, you know what, I, I, um, I don't know about this whole mistake or th- sinner thing. I'm, I'm not really sure what I think, but, but I think maybe there's something more to it. I would encourage you, take a step. Don't leave here tonight without taking a step. We, we would love to, to get to know you at our Connect Desk. Uh, if you came along with someone, what you should do is you should grab their arm and say, hey, I've got some questions and you need to buy me a coffee or you need to buy me a beer or you need to take me out for lunch or breakfast or whatever and, uh, and you need to uh, answer some of my questions. And if they say no, you just say, well, the dude up the front said you had to, okay? And that's how you get yourself a free coffee if this is your first time here, just do that. Um, but maybe for you tonight, maybe for you tonight, you, you're thinking, well, you've been coming for a while or it's just finally hit you for the first time. What we would love you to do is um, jump up to our Connect Desk after the service and we've got some free um, Bible packs that we would love to give you. Uh, or if maybe you don't want to talk to people, I totally get that. On your seats, we've accounted for this as well. There are some cards uh, because there is the Version Bible app that you can download on your smartphone and you can begin to unpack and open up the Bible in the palm of your hand as well. And that way you don't have to talk to anyone. But I also want to give you an opportunity to respond just where you are. It's not going to be weird. No one's going to ask you to raise your hand. No one's going to get you to stand up. But in a minute, I'm going to pray. And I'm going to just a lot, a little section of that prayer for you. And if tonight, maybe you said, you know what? I actually want to transfer my trust from myself. And I want to begin to trust in Jesus. I'm going to, I'm going to pray a prayer and you can pray it back. You don't have to pray it out loud. You just pray it right where you're at. No one will know. We want to give you an opportunity to put your faith and your trust in Jesus. Because at the center of the faith, at the center of the man behind the beard, is not a God who wants to lord it over you, but a God who gave everything for you. 
so that good people wouldn't go to heaven, but forgiven people would. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words that have been recorded in Matthew. Lord, we thank you that 2,000 years ago when you were walking along that road, you saw a tax collector. And you, Lord, you didn't put him in a category of good enough or not good enough. But Lord, you saw him as someone who was in need of love. And you asked him to follow you. And Lord, we thank you that, that we still have the words of Matthew to, to go back to and read today. And that we can see the way that you interacted and the way you spoke to people. That you stood up when religious leaders looked down their nose at people. Lord, you didn't want to have categories for us, but you said and you declared that you're a saviour. And you came for those of us who recognise that, hey, we're not mistakers. There's something deeper going on. And you didn't come to, to make us jump hurdles to get that, but you, all you asked was for us to put our faith and our trust in you, to take it off ourselves and to put it into you. And Lord, we pray as a community for those of us here tonight who follow Jesus, who have followed Jesus for a while, or maybe who have just recently begun to follow Jesus. We pray that this would be a timely reminder that the way we live and the way we reflect your love in the world should be not about moral superiority, not about rules and categories, but it should be about forgiveness and it should be about love. Because the prerequisite that we had to meet to follow you is to recognize that we don't have it all together. But you do. And if you're here tonight, and maybe for the first time you thought, hey, I want to I take that step. I want to take a step and I want to place my faith in Jesus. Then right now, just where you're at, I'd love you to say this prayer. You can just repeat it back after me. Just, just to yourself. Heavenly Father, Tonight's the night when I stop placing my trust and my faith in myself. Lord, I want to place my faith and my trust in Jesus. I recognize that I'm not just a mistaker, that it goes so much deeper than that. And I'm in need of a Savior. And so, Lord, tonight, I wanted to declare that Jesus is my Savior. That my trust and my hope is in Him. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.